So we're in a series in Philippians. I call Philippians the happiest book on earth. It's full of joy, happiness, gladness, just over and over and over. And the reason why it's so important is this. I think the Christian life is a battle for what we believe will make us happy. That that is at its core, it's a battle. And here's the enemy does. He does it in Genesis chapter three, where God gets a really good spot for his first two humans. It's good, it's good, it's good. Everything that they could possibly want. And in chapter three, what does the enemy come and say? God's holding out on you. The one tree that would truly make you happy. If you could just eat of this tree, you would be truly happy. God's holding out on you. And that's been the lie from that point on. That, oh, if you could just have that, you'd be happy. Ever heard of Joe Theismann? Pretty big football player in his day. So he has an affair and in the divorce proceedings, um, he is quoted as saying this because of his affair and his divorce from his wife. He says, God wants Joe Theismann to be happy. Yeah, what's he saying right there? Being married to you is no longer making me happy, so I'm gonna do what I want to do. The, the, I'm, I, something's being held out from me, so I'm gonna do whatever I want. Couldn't you use that as an excuse to do anything you want? So you gotta back up and say, will that truly make me happy? Like, what's our measure of what's gonna make us happy? Is it trading in your wife for a new model every once in a while? Is that gonna make you happy, Joe Theismann style? Is that what makes a person happy? And we always have this question in our mind that maybe there's a better garden out there for us. That the garden God has set us in, maybe this isn't the best garden, maybe there's a better garden out there, a greener pasture. And we gotta be really careful because happiness is the horsepower of life. It guides so many of the decisions that we make. And so we're coming to Philippians because we're saying we want our minds reshaped by our creator to learn what actually makes us happy. We want the methods that we're supposed to move in and work out that will lead to a happy life. And so what we've seen is Paul begins this letter by saying community is really important for your happiness. And we saw that three weeks ago. And then right after that, he says perspective is really important for your happiness. That for Paul, life is a win-win because he's a believer in Jesus Christ. It's a win-win. And then last week we saw the disposition of Christ's likeness is one of the ingredients for happiness. That what Jesus asks us to do, he's not hypocritical, he did it himself. And it leads to a happy life, okay? So now you might be sitting there thinking, well, that's a lot of talk, but I'm from Missouri. It's a show me state, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. I want a picture of this. Do you know what a picture, you know pictures are worth a thousand words? I like collect them now. I have just a, a document that's just, I grab pictures that I love. Here's one of them that I was just seeing this week. Like, isn't this a great picture? Do you see that? Kids have giant hearts. They don't know much, but they got giant hearts. And then you get old, you get a giant brain and a pea-sized heart. But is that make, making you and me happy? Probably not. Maybe it's why Jesus says, if you're gonna come to the kingdom, become like a child. So in Philippians, what we're trying to do is not shrink your heart or shrink your brain, but we're trying to grow your heart. So here's what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna say, all right, fine, show me state people. 
I'm gonna give you two examples, two pictures that you've seen of two men that have actually walked this out. They're called Timothy and Epaphroditus, and they're brilliant. It's how he ends chapter two, two pictures. But before we get there, he's got a couple more ingredients to throw in the mix of how to live a happy life. Let's jump in, verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Number one, Paul says this, be consistent. So these two verses, very often what we do with them is we argue a theology. Is it human responsibility or is it God's sovereignty? Is it God working in us, both the will and do of his good pleasure, or is it you and me working out our salvation with fear and trembling? Which one is it, right? So we argue theologically. To me, the answer is real simple. We work out what God has worked in. That's the way we go forward. And what we miss in this theological discussion is the happiness part of this, where Paul is saying this, I'm not there anymore. I'm absent. Keep working this thing out. Keep working this out. Don't make me look over your shoulder to make sure you're doing this. You work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Here's why. You are what you do when no one's around. Do you know that? Your family leaves, you got the house to yourself. What do you do? That's who you really are. Someone says eat. <laughs> All right, you're a hamburger. Awesome. Right, you are what you do when no one's around, when no one's watching, when you're on a business trip, when you're at wherever it is, when no one's looking over your shoulder, that's who you actually are, right? So Paul is saying, if you come to church, you study the Bible, or you read, or you pray, or you do the, all these things because of someone else, that's not actually you. And once that power is removed, once you're not chasing the girl anymore, you're not gonna work it out anymore because the power's gone. It's not really who you are. So Paul's saying, be consistent, be consistent. And I think it's been said rightly so, when you're in that in-between kind of spot, pretending, if you would, playing games, what happens is you have too much garbage to enjoy God and too much of God to enjoy the garbage. So you're kind of miserable right there. So Paul's saying, listen, be consistent. Work out what you believe. Not to virtue signal or something. Work out what you believe because it is who you are to be. And here's why it matters. There's this Hungarian psychiatrist and... Um, He's well-known for something. This is his name. Anyone want to try to pronounce that? Just take a stab at it. <laughs> right? That's a crazy name. Here's how it's pronounced. Chick sent me high E. He's very well-known for this one thing he added. This is it. This is what he says. 
the good life, a happy life, is one characterized by flow. This is his thing. By a complete absorption in what one does. That's his advice. That's what he's well known for. And he's saying the same thing. He's saying, don't play the hokey pokey. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be virtue signaling. Don't be trying to show off for your accountability group. Do what you do because that's who you are, period. Be completely absorbed in who you're supposed to be, right? If you don't, here's what can happen. If we pretend, if we play games, then your brain can do one of two things. It can do more than this, but it can do one of two things. Number one, you can get what's called cognitive dissonance. Have you heard that term? Okay, cognitive dissonance is this. It's a solo tug of war. Isn't that silly? It's you playing tug of war with yourself. And here's what that dissonance is. It is you believe some kind of a value that you say is important, but you live opposite to that value. That's the tug of war. So you believe every animal deserves a good long life, but you also love double doubles from In-N-Out Burger. But they're animal style, come on. You believe in a healthy lifestyle, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but you eat ice cream for every single meal, right? It's those kind of things. It's you believe that cleanliness is next to godliness, but when you get home, you peel your clothes like a snake and they stay there for a week, right? It's that. You, you say you have some kind of thing, but you don't actually walk it out, and it's a tug of war, a solo tug of war. You always lose, Right? because you're playing against yourself. So when you're not consistent, you can fall into that kind of thing, or the other side is this. It's called cognitive fusion. Cognitive fusion is a roller coaster. Here's what cognitive fusion is. It's buying whatever your emotions are selling you in the moment. Can you see how that might be a roller coaster? Because emotions are fickle, are they not? They're up and down, they're all around. You have no consistency to emotions. So here's like the path that... Uh, cognitive fusion takes in your brain. And it can be in a relationship. It can be in an investment. It can be in a business. It can be an opportunity. It can be in the elections, just this roller coaster. And it starts out with, man, it's all good. It's all good. Woohoo, it's all good. And then number two, fear. Someone says, did you hear about, oh, fear. Then shock. Shock is, no way. It can't be true. And then denial. No, they're all morons. They're exaggerating. They're not what they're talking about. Then rationalization. It is true. And then depression. I'm doomed. That's cognitive fusion. How many have bought a ticket to that roller coaster? All of us have. Some of us have eternal tickets on it, right? Because we're not consistent. We're not saying we're grounded on certain principles and these govern us no matter what our feelings are doing. We're consistently working out what God has worked into us and we get off that ride, right? We get off it. Psalm 51.6 says this, God desires truth in the inward parts. I live on these truths. I'm not playing games. I'm not pretending, period. Well, Matt, I think I'm in church right now for all the wrong reasons then. What do I do? First of all, you admit it. Confession is the course to change. Second of all, you better, the Bible says this, examine yourself 
to make sure you're in the faith. Like, am I actually saved? Has God worked in me what I'm supposed to work out? Because if you're not saved, God's not working in you and there's nothing to work out. So am I saved? Have I put my faith in Jesus Christ? And if you have any question on that, after this service, there'll be people up here that would love to pray for you and talk to you about it or someone right over here that would love to talk to you and maybe baptize you today. Well, Matt, I know I'm saved. I know that. So what do I do? I'm numb. Here's what Paul's gonna do. He's gonna give us three simple things that we work out, that we do, because I'm convinced of this. It is more easy to live out than to think out. Do you know what I'm saying? It is much more easy to live in happiness by certain things I do than try to think myself into happiness. And what science is catching up to the Bible is when you do certain things, if you smile, you know what happens to your brain? It gets super happy. It's just, there's people that have a disease that they can't smile. And when they can't smile, because they can't smile, they actually suffer depression at rates that are un real compared to the normal population because it's much easier to do than to think. So look at the very first word of verse 14. Do, do, right? I'm gonna help you now to work this thing out. It's not about thinking right now. Thinking will become important, chapter four. But right now, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Three simple things to do. Number one, don't grumble. I think this is the hardest one. You know why? 24-hour news. What does 24-hour news tell us about? All the great things that happen in our world? No, because no one watches that. What does it tell us about? All the things to grumble and complain about, right? You watch CNN, ah. You watch PBS, ah. You watch Fox News, ah. Grumble and complain. That's what happens to us. And here's, when you fill your mind up with that kind of stuff, here's a quote I took from a research paper on it. Check this quote out. Research shows that exposure to 30 minutes or more of negativity including viewing such material on TV, actually peels away neurons in the brain's hippocampus. That's the part of your brain you need for problem solving. Basically, it turns your brain to mush. Well, there's my problem, Matt. That's what happened to me. That's negativity. Like, be careful of grumbling and complaining. Be careful of it. I think in here, in this sanctuary, there should be no grumbling and no complaining because we serve a big God, right? 
And when I grumble and complain, here's what I'm doing. I'm venting. I'm not looking for a solution. It's not, hey, Pollyanna, everything's great. But when I grumble and claim, I'm not saying, how do we solve this? How do we get better? How do we grow? We're actually just wanting to vent and be negative. That's grumbling and complaining. And it starts to affect us. For believers, here's what I'm convinced of. When we believe in God, every obstacle becomes an opportunity for him to work. Read the book of Acts. That's the way they looked at the world. Bad things happen in the book of Acts. And they keep rejoicing and praising God. And then God takes the bad things and does really cool things with them. That is a perspective. Haven't you seen that in your own life? Where God takes the obstacle and turns it into an opportunity. My favorite example of this is, it's called the Cologne Concert. Have you ever heard of that? Okay, I'm gonna tell you about it. This girl, seven-year-old girl, decides for her senior project that it was, it was get out there, do something good for the community, that she wanted to throw a concert with Keith Jarrett, who's considered to be the, grass, the best jazz pianist in the world. So she wants to invite him, do this free concert for the community. Somehow she gets Keith Jarrett to agree to it. So she's working on this thing for about a year, right? A school year, just, okay? And Keith, Ryder sends, Keith Jarrett sends a writer. You know what a writer is? It's that thing that like, a band sends out and says, hey, when I come, make sure all this stuff is there. And his main thing is simple. I need a Bossendorf 290 piano. That's the piano I play. It fits my style. I need that, right? So she goes in, does all this preparation. It's happening. The day of the concert, Keith Jarrett flies in. He comes to the, the theater where he's going to be playing. He goes up, and there's the piano. It is not a Bossendorf or 290. It's a Walmarter that costs $290, and he's like, hey, I'm not playing this thing. And so they try to find one, but they can't find one. They can't get one there in time for him to play. So Keith Jarrett said, yeah, I'm not playing. Well, you have a 17-year-old girl who's worked nine months on a concert, and she's told the day of it is not gonna happen. What does a 17-year-old girl do? She cries. And what did Keith Jarrett do? All right, fine, I'll play. So he sits down and starts trying to just play this thing and it's just terrible, it's absolutely terrible. He said the middle was just messed up. It wasn't like you couldn't play it. There was no sound coming out of it. So what happens is Keith Jarrett, this great penis, has to play outside of what he's comfortable in, has a giant obstacle, and a Walmarter 290. And he plays it in a way he's never played before. And that night, it was recorded. And that recording is now the best-selling solo Al jazz album in history, 3.5 million copies of it sold. Not bad for an hour and a half's work. What happened? An obstacle was turned into an opportunity. And we serve a big God. What Paul is saying right here is, are you kidding me? Are you kidding? Why are you grumbling and complaining? Who's the God you trust in? Don't you have a journal full of where God has met you? You thought, oh, it's the end of the world. And it wasn't. In fact, it turned out for your good. And that's the God that we serve. No grumbling, no complaining. When we're working out our salvation, number one, no grumbling, no complaining. Number two, he says, hold fast to the word of life. I love that phrase. Hold fast to the word of life. Now, why, when I come to church, here or other places, do I always hear 
pastors and people saying, man, study your Bible, read your Bible, know your Bible. Why? Like I try, I can't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. What's the deal with you guys always putting so much pressure on us to read the Bible? Here's why. There's power in this book. It's quick. It's living. It's sharp. It's active. And number two, it is the plan. Capital T, capital P, the plan. Every one of us has plans. Maybe who we're gonna marry. Maybe the house we're gonna live in. Maybe the job career we want. Maybe opportunities we wanna take advantage of. Maybe cities we wanna visit. Maybe a bucket list of stuff to do. We all have our plans, right? Everyone has them. The worst thing in the world is for you to get all that you want. Do you know that? So Oscar Wilde, if you know his story, he was a wild man. But he has this quote, and I wrote it down many, many years ago. He says this. When the gods want to punish us, they answer all our prayers. Because we, you and I, we are clueless for what we want. God has a will, and we want that will. We are actually created to partner, Genesis 1, with God's will. And when we're in sync with it, when we're doing it, man, it's beautiful and brilliant. We want God's will more than our will. It's why verse 13 ends with his good pleasure. God's a good God that gives good gifts to his kids. It's exactly what Jesus says. So he says, ask, seek, knock. Well, Matt, I have prayed and God didn't give me what I wanted. And it wasn't a good gift. You ever have kids that ask you for stuff that you're like, that's not good. All right, dad, can I borrow the chainsaw? <laughs> what, why? Because I wanna go upstairs in my room and cut a hole in the wall and I wanna ride my snowboard out on the frosty roof and do a double sukkahar the backflip and land on the lawn, dad. No. But Hunter's dad lets him Hunter's dad hates him, no, right? This is, this is, this book right here is the word of life that helps us get in contact with the only will that will make you and me happy, God's will. So Paul says when you're working this thing out, make sure, make sure to hold fast to the word of life. It has a weight, it has a pressure. Do you know that? and it's exerted on your soul, and it changes you. And you may not notice it. So recently I was reading about how diamonds form. You know what a diamond is? Carbon, that's all it is. One of the most like, essential and everywhere components of earth, right? We got too much of it. CO2 is going up into the, according to some people and causing all kinds of problems because there's too much carbon, right? There's a carbon tax because there's too much carbon. So you get this very, very, very plentiful thing called carbon, but man, under the right circumstances, it makes the rarest of things called a diamond. And here's what happens. You take a lump of carbon, coal, coal or a chunk of coal, and put a lot of weight on it. And year after year, month, decade after decade, century after century, thousand upon thousand upon thousands of years, what happens is that that pressure, each day one atom is moved into a hexagon, and another atom is moved into a hexagon. And day after day that happens until finally after thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that lump of coal 
is this beautiful, brilliant, priceless diamond. That's the word of life. Like we may not realize it. I'm reading, I'm saying, I don't know. But one atom got changed in you because we're just lumps of coal. That's what we are. And we wanna be diamonds. Well, it takes the weight of the word of life, that pressure day after day, rearranging our atomic structure until one day we look back and we're like, hey, I've changed, right? What did the lump of coal say to the diamond? Hey, you've changed. What did the diamond reply? I know I've been under a lot of pressure. <laughs> That's it. If you're under pressure right now, praise God. He's doing something. He's remodeling. He's remaking these lumps of carbon into brilliant, transformed diamonds that will shine for eternity. Get in, stay in, daily walk in God's word. It transforms you atom by atom from carbon into diamonds. Stay in it. And thirdly, he says this. Let go of your life. Now remember where Paul's in. He's in prison, possibly facing a death sentence. He says this. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, what do he say right there? Yeah. I am glad <laughs> and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, if you hear news that I got my head cut off, throw a giant party and be glad, because I am. How crazy of a philosophy is that? Because death is no longer the worst thing for you and me. The worst thing is to die without Jesus. That's the worst thing. And you and I have Jesus now. Death has lost its sting. Two weeks ago, Paul just says, it's a win-win. To live as Christ, to die is gain. It's a win-win, right? Because Paul knew this. Death is no longer an executioner. It's the gardener. That these bodies, they're just seeds. And death plants us so that we produce what we're supposed to be through eternity. And a seed is incomparable to the plant, right? Compare a redwood seed to a redwood tree. They're incomparable. That's why Paul says to die is gain. Brilliant. So now Paul's written a ton of words, a ton of advice. And the Missouri people are saying, show me. So Paul says, okay, I've got two guys that you know well. I'm gonna lift them up as examples of men who live this and have joyful, happy lives. They're Timothy and Epaphroditus. Check this out. Verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. 
for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul holds up these two pictures, men that they knew. Timothy, he says, and remember, Paul's crew is 18. Like, if you couldn't hang with Paul, he just left you. Ask John Mark. Hey, too, too, too slow, right? A team, he's dream team. And he says, in my dream team, my number one dude is this guy named Timothy. Wow. Now I bet Epaphroditus would sit there going, okay, that's awesome. Hard to play second fiddle. And here's what he says about these men. Number one, he says they're interested in other people. Didn't we talk about that last week? Paul says, I don't have anyone like Timothy. Why? Because he's not selfish. He's interested in your well-being, just like we talked about in verses four and five, that the Christian is to be interested in the well-being of other people. We're an army of people that are concerned with others, not just ourselves, right? These guys are living it. They're doing it. Verse 22, he served me in the ministry. Last week, we talked about how important service is. Not just serving, but actually being a servant that when God calls us and presses on us, we do what our king asks of us. We don't kick against the goats and run from what God is asking us to. Okay, God, I trust you. Okay, they serve. In verse 25, he looks at Epaphroditus and goes, he's my brother. He looks at Timothy and says, he's my son. Now they weren't really his brother or son, right? Timothy was younger than him. He goes, he's like, I'm like a father. And he's like my son. He looks at Epaphroditus, a man of his own age. He's like my brother. It's community. But it's even deeper than community. Church is to be a family. God is our father. Jesus is our older brother, the Bible says. And then every one of us, we're siblings. We're brothers and sisters. And for thousands of years, that's what church was to a community. It was family. Until about 50 years ago. And then what happened about 50 years ago was this kind of like wide open and, and pe people became amberchurches. You know what that is? Bouncing but never belonging. We go to this church and go to that church and never, never really kind of land, just bounce but never belong. And you know what? I'm fine with that. As long as you tithe here. You can tip there but tithe here. <laughs> it's sad to me though actually because I think you miss out on something. When you just kind of bounce and you dabble, but you don't belong, you miss out on the depth that God wants for you. Well, Matt, I like a lot of different churches. I'm not sure where I should go. Here's, I think, how you measure the church that you should belong to. If someone in your family dies, who do you call? That's the church that you belong to. That's where you connect and you contribute. If it's here, wonderful. Praise God, we love that. If it's someone else, somewhere else, no problem. Connect there and contribute to that body of believers. Belong to them, right? That's what Paul's saying here. It's a family. And then lastly, 
He loves not his life even to death. He let go of his life. Just like Paul has asked. Yeah, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Listen to this guy, Epaphroditus. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. He just let go of his life. Here's the backstory to this. Paul gets put in prison. He gets shipped to Rome. Um, Rome wasn't under the Geneva Convention. None of that stuff existed. When you got put in prison in Rome, they did not feed you. If you did not have a community that was willing to feed you, you had about a two-week death sentence and then you died because it wasn't their responsibility to feed you. So you hope, if you were a prisoner, that there were people that loved you enough to help feed you, right? So Paul is in Rome, Philippi, 800 miles away, hears about Paul being in prison in Rome and they're like, man, we gotta make sure he's eating. So they get the church together, they take an offering, they get a bag of money, and they're like, how do we get this money from here 800 miles up to Rome? Who's gonna walk it there? So let's say I go to Seattle, and I am in front of a abortion mill, and I'm out there protesting, and I get sent to jail in Seattle, and Seattle has gone rogue. They don't feed their prisoners anymore. You guys hear about this? You take up an offering. Who here is saying, you know what? I will hike the Pacific Crest Trail to get this bag of money to map. That's pretty radical, huh? Epaphroditus is the man that does it. On the hiking trip, he gets Giardia, nearly dies. People are telling him, dude, go to the hospital. You got a bag of money. I'm not spending this on myself. This is for Paul to feed him. And he almost dies. What a brilliant USDA stallion, this guy, that loves not his life. Ah, I'm living for something bigger purpose. So Paul here says, look, you got two guys in your group that you know well, Timothy and Epaphroditus. They're pictures of everything that I'm telling you about. And they're men full of joy. They're men full of purpose. But let me give you one more. Let's step back from this for one second. Because here's what you see in here. You see honor and happiness. Paul is honoring these men, is he not? In church. He's talking about these men. Hey, look at all these great, honor, 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 honor. And he's like, hey, I'm sending Epaphroditus to you. When he gets there, what does he want them to do? I'll read it for you. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. When Epaphroditus gets home, you honor him and you throw a big party for him. Get out the kazoos. Barbecue something big and delicious. Break out the ale, ginger ale. Break out the beer, root beer, and have a great time. That's what he's saying right here. Throw, honor him and throw a giant party for him. Honor and happiness go hand in hand. Do you honor your spouse in front of your kids at home? Do you honor your kids in front of other people? Because honor and happiness go hand in hand. And if there's not honor, there's not happiness, and what I think happens to a kid if he hasn't been honored in his home is he turn, turns 18 and gets out of there and doesn't come back. I was never honored by my dad. Never honored by my mom. I'm out of here. I think church and homes should practice honor and plan on having fun. 
Because if you don't practice honor, it doesn't, doesn't happen. If you don't plan on having fun, life gets too busy and you don't have fun. I think we're to be a group of people that practice honor and plan on having fun. And Edgewater, in our beginning, we failed on this. We had great Epaphroditus and Timothy, men and women went, that went out from here and they did amazing things across the world. And then when we come back, we didn't throw a party for them. We didn't honor them. We didn't bring them up on stage and say, listen to what these people did. Honoring them, it was a mistake. And we've tried to rectify that now. Now when kids decide, young adults, I should say, decide to go down to Mexico and spend time down there, we bring them up and say, look at what these young people are deciding. Why? Because it makes our hearts happy. Like, yes, there's hope. The gospel is going forward to the next generation, right? We honor. We honor people because it's important. And then we make sure and plan. Like one of our four pillars at Edgewater, if you don't know it, one of them is celebration. We're supposed to celebrate. Plan on having fun. That's what we're supposed to do. So a couple years ago, I was thinking about this. And in staff, I made something in staff now. Every Tuesday morning, when we get together, someone gets honored. And what happens is, back then I had, it was a Hawaiian lei, because my idea was, hey, they're creating paradise, right? They're making paradise here in Grants Pass, on earth as it is in heaven. But it's now been changed to a belt, which is fine, because the, the idea is the same. It's, all right, it is find somebody throughout the week you, that got the belt, you're looking and watching for someone that you're going to honor in the next meeting. And they get that belt, and it's just this kind of part of our culture now, because honor and happiness go hand in hand. Where did Paul get this idea of honor and happiness? From God. Because when you and I get to heaven, guess what God says to us? Well done, good and faithful servant. We're honored. And then what happens next? A giant party called the Marriage Feast of the Lamb the biggest party in eternity that God throws for you and me, right? Like, I think sometimes we believe that God is good, but we don't actually believe that God is good-natured. Like, the choice between heaven and hell is this, well, I can go somewhere really hot, or I can go somewhere where there's a really grumpy guy that owns everything. Uh, I don't know which one. Let me see here, right? It's a lie. Listen to this verse. This is Isaiah 65. This is God looking down the tunnel of time about what he wants but be glad. What is that right there? It's a command. Like the Ten Commandments, it's a command. What is the command to the believer? Be glad and rejoice. How long? Is that a long time? It's a really long time. And that which I create. Look out there. How can I not bring you joy? The king that calls you and me brothers and sisters spoke that into existence. Rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a bummer, chore, drudgery, to be a joy. And her people to be a gladness. I, this is what God says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. We believe God is good, but we don't believe God is good-natured because it's a lie from the enemy and it rips us off from life. 
I think church and homes should be full of practicing honor and planning parties because that's what God has for us. Like the way that we're to remember Jesus is how? Getting nailed to a cross? Getting whipped 40 times? Memorizing the genealogies of numbers? No, how do we remember him? By a meal, by a feast. That's how we remember him. It's the centrality of what you and I do. Come, our king is so good. Come, our king is the author of joy. Come, sample it today. Remember me by the bread and by the cup. And so Jesus today, as we hold in our hands a sample a down payment, a sneak preview of new Jerusalem that's coming to be created in joy and gladness. I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would fill us with joy, gladness, rejoicing, happiness. Let's eat together. When we hold the cup, yes, it's the cup of forgiveness. Yes, it's the cup of cleansing, but it's also the cup of celebration that you said, I will not drink of this cup until I drink it anew in the kingdom at the marriage feast. It's anticipation of the coming celebration that will rejoice in our hearts forever. So today, may a little bit of heaven, a little bit of eternity, may it be put in our hearts today and we, may we go from this place joining in a celebration of the holidays full of your gladness and your joy. Let's drink together. Amen. So we'll sing one final song. After that song, there'll be people up here that'd love to pray for you as well as Jason Folkstadt will be right over here in one minute. If you have any questions about what it means to be baptized, because every Sunday we offer baptism. So if today is the day, Thanksgiving week, man, what a great week to be baptized. Come talk with Jason. Would you stand for this final song?